0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Uh, And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in... 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and uh, listen on your device of choice uh, if you type in those coordinates and uh, anywhere across the country as I say 24 hours a day seven days a week and I would like to welcome uh, our next guest to the show Cora mcguire Saret, and she is the executive director of the Ontario Native Women's Association. It's a pleasure to have her back so uh, Cora welcome.
1: Oh thank you for having me back great to be here.
0: It's a, it's a pleasure. Now, um, I guess since uh, the last time we spoke, things have changed a little bit. Uh,
1: drastically. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and, and of course, uh, that's partly why we wanted to, uh, to have you back on and talk about what the Ontario Native Women's Association is doing to help uh, individuals and families and women uh, w- with the COVID-19 situation and, and how they're helping.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, definitely. This is a story that hasn't been told in the media um, mm. uh, over the recent months mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, the Indigenous women that are battling on the front lines. And, um, you know, it's Indigenous women were the topic of conversation and were a priority prior mm. to the pandemic. And now uh, is you know, kind of gone pretty silent, even regarding the national inquiry.
0: Um so, so, what have you guys done uh, then, in terms of um, rolling things out or 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 dealing with the covid nineteen situation
1: oh great yeah, definitely um, what we 've been able to do is we really turned our services into being on the front line without being on the front line uh, and we did that immediately um, prior to it being uh, directed by the government as a best practice. Uh, We really needed to get creative at the beginning on how to keep um, our employees safe um, and to ensure that the community members that access our services were also going to be able to have safety and get the services that meet their needs. And so the first thing we had to do was really begin to work remotely um, across the province. And luckily, we had been building um, for a couple of years some technology infrastructure, which really allowed us to do that. And then we did a call out to our staff to do, you know, to think creatively on services that we can provide to the community that was what was needed and that uh, they really did not disappoint uh, quite proud of the, the work and the creativity that they've been able to do um, everything from drop and go bags uh, to mm. support um, food security from at the very beginning. Cause we recognized at the beginning of the pandemic that um, With all of the mass shopping that was happening,
0: Mm.
1: uh, indigenous women and babies, for instance, formula was missing from the shelves, And, you know, it really became quite scary at the beginning because their lives were definitely on the line. And so uh, we have access as a provider uh, to the food uh, chain. And so we were able to get that food chain secured quite quickly and then share it out across communities that had nothing in the grocery stores and some of the northern communities, there was nothing Mm. And then we did emergency shipments to some of those communities that were in. And then we actually had access to um, a PPE supplier an indigenous uh, business locally owned and operated, Mm -hmm. but he needed us a large supply in order to, to, to buy the amount of PPEs. Um, And so as a small indigenous uh, business, uh, we needed to look at how do we get the supply out to our communities and, um, you know, what needed to happen was a large purchase needed to occur. So we made the decision to do it and then to share those resources out across the province uh, with other service providers. So we supported, uh, for instance, um, housing providers, um, local police stations that didn't have PPEs uh, to uh, Aboriginal shelters of Ontario. You know. yeah. And so it really was a very collective event um, and a community. Uh, based approach to ensure that not only were we keeping ourselves safe, but we also reached out to our partners to see how we can help support them to ensure that their staff and community members were safe as well.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a, that's a great little story right there. Um, and, and just to, to fill people in a little bit more about the uh, Ontario Native Women's Association, um, a community supporting community of a, uh, that uh, continues to support indigenous women, families, and community with newly developed community coordination approach. And as, as we're talking about in this crisis, there is potential gaps for in services. And that's why the Ontario Native Women's Association created this centralized intake uh, for those who need a safety plan, advocacy for support uh, when needed and access to services without a complicated referral process. Now that's, that's great. How does that work for, for you and also for the people that are looking for services?
1: Definitely. What we did is we opened up our mandate to ensure that um, nobody fell through the cracks um, of the system and the the COVID response, because we realized there wasn't too many service providers that uh, had their doors still open in order for Mm. people to access service. And we started to see that the violence uh, continued to increase and get worse um, across the province. And so we had to figure out a creative way of, and a new way of doing business in order to ensure that um, we were able to help support anybody access, uh, you know, the programming and services that we were offering to our current community members, but to the larger public as well. And so since we've operated in this fashion, uh, we've actually helped support over 8,500 people to date. Wow. And so it's, uh, and it's pretty much been uh, about at least anywhere from one to 2,000 people a week. Wow. That we've been able to help support.
0: Hmm. Wow. And, and I'm, I'm guessing those, those needs are quite varied uh, in in terms of what people are looking for.
1: Oh, definitely. Everything from, you know, moon time support for um, Hmm. indigenous women. Uh, I know the food security is one everybody talks about, but uh, what we started to do was programming in the home. options and so normally as a social work uh, social services agency uh, we do workshops and presentations and you know healing circles and where you do it in group settings Um, obviously that we had to change our way of operating pretty quickly uh, in order to say okay how can we help support uh, the indigenous community right now um, when you know, they may not even have a cell phone or internet for that matter. Mm. And all of the services were switched to online. So we started doing uh, drop and go programming in the home bags where the family could do programming themselves. And so one of the very successful programs we started to do was seed to table workshops in the home where we would drop off. uh, It's kind of like your own kind of Community garden startup in your home. Mm. Uh, so, we we drop off all the supplies to start up tomato plants, um, you know, green peppers, like really easy to grow mm. plants. Mm-hmm. And that way, the families, like the moms, could do it with their children in the home. Right. And then at the same time, they're taking care of their own food security as well. Um, so, some of the other program in the home is like, you know, uh, we're doing uh, paint nights. And if they have access to uh, a computer, they're able to log into either like a Zoom call or a Facebook private call, and then they work together as a community online uh, to build those pieces.
0: Mm. As you were talking there and and describing what you were doing and how you had to react and and dealing with with the the kind of situations that you were finding, especially with people that maybe uh, didn't have access to internet, et cetera, et cetera. I, I got the sense that some degree and and please tell me if i'm wrong that what you guys are doing are is is very similar to frontline workers
1: yeah definitely but we, we are on the front lines mm-hmm. um yeah 100 uh, percent. that's why I, I mean like that's one of the stories that's not being told is mm-hmm. um who else is on the front line uh, right. it's not taken away from the conversation it's adding to the mm-hmm. conversation that indigenous women continue to to be on the front lines, everybody from the Aboriginal shelters of Ontario, uh, where, um, you know, they're looking at how do they support women who are trying to leave, um, you know, family violence situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when you're looking at our frontline workers and what they've been able to do across the province, um, very creatively, very fast, very effective, very efficient um, at the very beginning of this. And now you're seeing the results where, the increased demand for our services, it's kind of almost like the we've opened up a door and so now it's a matter of like how are we going to continue to manage this. That's probably one of the areas that we're now having to look at as an agency is that the the funding hasn't increased in order to meet this new mm. demand. Mm-hmm. And so that's one area of concern for us as an agency is that we went from uh, two years ago, with our stats was we supported fourteen thousand people across the province of Ontario in one year in a matter of months we 've now mm-hmm. supported at a minimum eighty five hundred people okay. and and the demand is continuing to be there and so we really do need to push that the time for investing in indigenous women is now and to ensure that um, nobody falls through the cracks right mm-hmm. now in the province or here nationally
0: yeah um you mentioned uh, violence—the uh, an increase in violence uh, since the COVID pandemic uh, started. Was that something you anticipated, or were you surprised by this? And uh, and how uh, how were you able to help th- those in need in that area?
1: Yeah, we, we knew it was going to happen. Hmm. Um, indigenous women are facing a crisis before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and. Every pandemic that has ever happened occurred is compounded by historical violence um, Mm. and historical crises and historical trauma. And so we knew without a doubt that violence against Indigenous women was going to increase, it was going to get worse um, because the safe places where she usually accessed services were closed. Mm. And sometimes your home, you know, we we take for granted um, a privilege is that if you have a safe home to be in, to, you know, making that assumption um, you know it could do a lot of harm in communities and that's what we're seeing now that uh, family violence has drastically increased Um, at the beginning we even seen community based violence you know lots of lateral violence online attacking people um, Mm. and really shaming people judging people so Mm. um, we believe that the numbers for uh, COVID are higher with the Indigenous community but nobody's going to um, you know, share like if they've been tested, or if it's too scary to even get tested because of the amount of violence you're going to face and mm. being shamed and right. ostracized in the community. If you do have it, uh, they're yeah. going to be—it's going to be blaming the victim—is what's going to happen.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so what we started to do is we started to uh, look at how are we going to help support women right now when. They, it's not a safe place to talk in your home. Even if you do have a phone, you can't right. call a helpline. Um, sometimes, right now, if you're in the home and maybe your abuser's in that same home, mm. so we started to look at um, purchasing some pay-as-you-go phones. Uh, mm-hmm. That way, uh, the woman who would get those phones would have to do a safety plan uh, with their worker, and you know have a plan on how are you going to escape safely if you do. safely and we had to get pretty creative as well right because you can't fly a woman out of a city right now right Uh, that's not an option you know uh, you know human trafficking of indigenous women has gone even further other ground Um, Mm. it's still there Uh, you know the the gangs are still there Uh, though that uh, situation hasn't left if anything it's further compounded by the COVID and I think this is something that we as a community need to look at that during the pandemic, we've seen what we can do when we decide to work collectively together. Mm. And if we decided today that Indigenous women have a right to safety and we put the same time, effort, and energy into COVID that we, that we do now because we recognize that if one person isn't well, the whole community isn't well. It's the exact same concept that Indigenous women have been saying for generations. Mm. If she's not well, the entire community is not well.
0: Right, right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in uh, Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and uh, type in the coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week right across the country. It's a pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth my guest uh, in this part of the show, uh, Cora Maguire-Sourette, and she's the the Executive Director of The Un- Ontario Native Women's Association. We're talking about uh, the Ontario Native Women's Association and uh, what and how they are helping uh, people uh, during this pandemic. And uh, it's been quite interesting and also enlightening uh, to learn about what their frontline workers are uh, are doing to help uh, the many people in Ontario that need their services. And also to find out that, that they had to make some quick choices at the very beginning of this to uh, to to look at uh, buying some uh, personal protective equipment and needed to purchase a, a rather large amount. And uh, it was more than they needed, but they, they went ahead and did that, made that purchase, and then started sharing that with other organizations. Um, so, Cora, uh, having said that, you, you know, when you were sharing that out with uh, other organizations, uh, that leads me to the question about, How you you do work with other organizations. So in this is kind of a situation and uh, you wanted to simplify things for people. And I think you said uh, it was sort of like a single point entry, but then you would you would work and you've had to be become even more creative in the way you do things because of, as you pointed out, people can't uh, fly in and out of cities now. So people and women in need that uh, might be exposed into a violent situation that need to uh, to find a way out of that. You guys had to get more creative about those things. So how how did how did the how did did or anything change in terms of the way you work with other organizations?
1: Oh, completely. Um, You know, we realized um, community coordination really wasn't happening on the ground. cause everything happened so fast. There was no time to have a, put a plan in place Mm -hmm. on, you know, from, from an agency standpoint on how like who's going to pick up what piece of work. Everybody was really scrambling to ensure um, the safety of their employees. Um, uh, Many organizations had to close their doors because they didn't have the technology to work remotely, Mm. um, you know, and different pieces like that. So we started to see, okay, what, what can we do as an organization um, because we had been building a technology infrastructure for a number of years, like being very creative and testing out a whole lot of different um, uh, environments. Like, so we had upgraded to the 365 and Teams environment that we were already testing for about a year. Mm. Um, So we went live, we were able to go live pretty quickly um, as a result. And so we're like, well, let's figure out how we can share and support our partners um, if they want it. You know, so Mm. we started to, you know, build and expand on our relationships to say, hey, we're here, how can we help you? um and that's really what it was like let's work together um you know helping and we'll take the lead we had no problem like saying if you Mm. want if you want to lead we'll support you in leading if you want us to lead we'll lead and that's how it began and we just said okay let's hit the ground running we got our staff that are ready here and any community partners who need anything or identifying issues in the community let's just begin to help uh, let 's put away the policies let 's put away procedures that don 't make sense there 's no time to be changing them right now. Uh, we need to make sure that whatever we do is in the best interests of the communities uh, that we serve and that they weren 't left hanging in this crisis mm. and so that 's really how it began and from there it 's really expanded because uh, we nobody can do this work alone. Mm. Um, uh, we as an organization we can 't do this work alone. We need to do this work collaboratively together uh moving forward in the same direction Mm -hmm. uh to ensure that our communities are safe and well um you know and that indigenous women are very resilient you know they've proven this time and time again over many generations that we have a newfound respect for our ancestors who went through previous pandemics Mm. um i couldn't imagine going through pandemic and then having like you know an issue like the residential school come in and um you know, the apprehension of children
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the sixties scoop, you know, so because we had that knowledge and the past is there for us to learn. One of the first things we started to do is have conversations with child welfare agencies to say, now is not the time to be apprehending children um, for poverty issues. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if, if moms don't have enough food in the cupboard, call us and we'll get food in the cupboard. Mm. And, you know, so, um, and it, you know that's and one part that we didn't like was that the some child welfare agencies across the province chose to stop visitation with the parents uh so that has long term impact on mm. children and mothers and mental health and addiction issues, so sure. you can never get ahead when people continue to enforce um, punitive policies that don't make sense mm-hmm. uh theres ways that they could easily ensure that visitations were to continue. You could easily do an assessment with the parents and get the children back in home where Mm. they belong, you know, as opposed to being in, um, you know, group care settings or uh, unsafe settings. Um, And we're talking about children who really don't need to be in the care of child welfare. You know, we do do recognize there is some cases where uh, there is severe abuse happening. We're not talking about those kids. We're talking about how the majority of Indigenous children are in care right now due to poverty. Mm-hmm. And we suddenly had our entire nation turn into poverty-stricken, and suddenly we're facing the same issues that Indigenous people have been facing for generations. Um, mm. You know, So we're really hoping that a lesson is learned here, and that we as a nation are more collectively connected together, mm. um, hopefully.
0: Now you just said something interesting there about lessons learned, and and I'm wondering you know, once this this is resolved, if and when, um, it, it, would you say at this point in time that you you have a system that is working fairly well?
1: Oh, completely. Our system. Uh, we're working out some minor. Uh, tweaks to it obviously Mm. Um, but we have one one phone number where people can call in and get service right and then we deal with the referral pieces and everything in the background which is really what workers jobs are is to be that advocate to to navigate systems um, and to ensure that when somebody needs something you know the systems are there to help support what their need is not having a community member meet their needs it Mm. really is flipping Uh, the switch and Mm -hmm. turning things over. And so our biggest thing is going to be about advocating and maintaining this funding now that uh, we've got as a one-time use, but it really has turned into a best practice and getting, you know, the the government to recognize and see this approach works. Mm -hmm. This is what's needed in the indigenous community uh, because there is a lack of core funding for Mm -hmm. indigenous organizations to do the work that they
0: need to do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned phone number we 're going to give that phone number out uh, a little bit later uh, as we get uh, closer to the end of the show, which is quickly approaching actually, but anyway, um, the other thing I wanted to to uh, ask you about was what would you say moving forward and looking forward that um, has has will have an impact on you and your organization moving forward um, i 'm guessing w- like most organizations, because no one has dealt with this before, there is, there is some things to learn and that can be taken advantage of from this unfortunate situation.
1: Oh, completely. I think that the leadership of Indigenous women across um, this province, mm. uh, you know, they continue to inspire me and amaze me as well as the youth, mm-hmm. um, you know, watching um, and supporting, you know, uh, let's say a young single mother uh, with five children in her home and you know how to and navigating a system navigating poverty and navigating you know family violence and still continuing to be resilient and pursuing her dreams in education that all of the barriers that are placed up to to um you know ensure that they don't succeed mm. they're still mm-hmm. succeeding regardless of and so uh, I just, I continue to see uh, hope and inspiration when I see people being kind to one another and addressing racism. Mm. Um, you know, there there is an opportunity to come out of a crisis um, in a better place for our future generations. And I really hope that that's what the pandemic does here uh, with Indigenous women, that people begin to see the work that they do in the community every single day. And the time to invest in them is now and they need to be a priority um, you know they they matter in that and digital can't be missing in this conversation.
0: Mm for sure uh, that's that's a great way uh, to, to sort of end out the segment in, in terms of uh, praising the women that you point out to that are that are dealing with this situation like you said a mom maybe with five kids and still uh, dealing with an unfortunate situation uh, on top of that maybe violent and also uh, uh, trying to pursue her, her own dreams of uh, higher education or whatever that might be uh, that's really uh, Really nice to hear, and it's wonderful to hear that that they are doing that, continuing to do that, even through this this continued uh, COVID nineteen situation. Is there anything, uh, Cora, that we haven't mentioned that you think is important to touch on just before we exit?
1: Yeah, I think that um, we can't forget about the uh, the need for a national action plan on addressing violence against Indigenous women and girls, mm. and specific to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And right. uh, we recognize. Um, And completely understandable that during the pandemic that um, there is going to be a delay. Um, But there is an opportunity right now for the federal government and provincial government um, in order to make uh, Indigenous women a priority in their COVID response um, while we continue to build the action plan together.
0: Mm. Well, let's certainly hope that they do take advantage of that. And uh, certainly uh, you pointed out racism earlier. Uh, that's, a, that's a, of course, forefront uh, these days with the news that's been traveling around and it, there seems to be a swing back to, to gain, uh, you know, some sort of uh, um, not just awareness, but actual action that, that should be taken towards this. And let's hope it happens. Let's hope it does. And we hope that it, that, Never goes away, and it doesn't, uh, we don't forget about this. We, we actually do something, and greater society does something about this uh, as we move forward. Corey, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show for sure, and we, we appreciate you taking the time to do so. And it sounds like you have a lot on your plate with everything that's going on around the province and, and what you're dealing with.
1: Oh definitely, thank you for having me here today and um yeah, definitely me and my team we've got um seven days of work a week, and uh we're not stopping mm. um and so definitely a self care plan will be in place for our employees after this
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding for sure um uh, now, the number people can get a hold of you at is I believe one eight hundred six six seven zero eight one six that's correct. Great. So I'll say that again, 1-800-667-0816. And you can also find uh, the Ontario Native Women's Association online at onwa.ca. And is there any other numbers or 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 things you, you want to share? Uh, or is that pretty much it?
1: Yeah, no, that's good. Definitely. Everything's on our website. Um, yep. We launched a new website and you can hmm. actually sign up for workshops through our website.
0: Excellent. All right. Uh, Cora, thanks again. We really appreciate you taking the time to come and join us today on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Miigwech. All right. Yeah,
0: miigwech. And that is Cora McGuire-Sourette, and she is the Executive Director of the Ontario Native Women's Association, and it's been a pleasure to have her on the show today. And that's this part of the show. We'll be right back with more right after this, so don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element element fm i'm your host david moses you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa and i would like to welcome our next guest to the show it is dr jennifer brandt she is assistant professor in curriculum teaching and learning at the university of toronto you have ties to the six nations of the grand river territory as well as tandenega and um so, uh, you completed your PhD at the Brock University and you taught at the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba and currently Assistant Professor at the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. So, congratulations and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind moving to Winnipeg and then moving back in a short time, but mm. I'm happy to be back. Yep. Surrounded by community and family.
0: <laughs> so uh, where's most of your family? Do you are you kind of split between both Six Nations and Tandonega?
2: The majority of my family uh, resides at Six Nations, but I do have some family members living on Tandonega. And right. then um, I kind of grew up like around the Niagara area. So mm-hmm. I have a family over here as well.
0: Now, Jennifer, your dissertation entitled Journeying Toward a Praxis of Indigenous Maternal. Pedagogy, lessons from our sweet grass baskets, provides insight into the value and unique pedagogical approach as it relates to cultural identity development and academic success. You want to put that into layman terms? <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's always the
2: challenge, right? Because I've been trained so long to put everything into like academic right. language. But um, essentially, uh, my dissertation work was, um, I started with my own journey, right, um, mm. in so it was an extension of my master's work that looked at the barriers um, that Indigenous women face with access to higher education, but also with success. Right once um, once enrolled and um, working through programs, mm. and so I found that there were a ton of like overlapping and intersecting barriers. And so that was my master's work, and my part of that was working with um, Indigenous. Uh, women in the community to find out what their vision of um, not an access program, but more like a culturally specific program that connected to their educational desires would look like. And so I developed at Brock University um, and with my work at the Tecumseh Center there, Mm. um, I was able to develop the Gideon program. Mm. And so my dissertation was looking at The pedagogical approach, like the sort of teaching and learning um, approach of that program, and so I worked with women that had completed um, several of the courses that I taught. One being an Indigenous literatures course, um, and that's when we, the sweetgrass basket part of the title was like something that i hadn't anticipated but it was a strong theme that came out of their uh narratives that they they shared with me because one of the books that they read in the indigenous literature course was called sweet grass basket mm-hmm. um and so just talking about how important that was to them and how they've carried that into their lives in different ways
0: so. mm. uh you just mentioned uh brock and um i, I actually sat on um uh, uh on a, a committee with some people from brock that was associated with Six Nations for uh, for uh, education um, and I've forgotten her name now so I can't even tell you that so, <laughs> but um, uh, so I guess though you know with with the kind of thing that you're involved with, especially in terms of, of women, um, we're in an interesting time now especially in the last given the last few weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks uh, of what has happened south of the border, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the COVID COVID nineteen situation, um, which has really brought attention not only to to Black Lives Matter uh, and what has happened with that, but also uh, you know to indigenous the indigenous people as well.
2: Hmm. Yeah. So it's it's just been like a whirlwind of um, like for me of and I imagine everybody that's that's following and that's affected by this in some way but um it just kind of like since January you know it was the blockades with the and mm-hmm. I'm probably going to mispronounce but the Wet'suwet'en territory right so blockades and of course Tayanda mm-hmm. um, was instrumental one of the communities instrumental in supporting like the nationwide blockades
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. so
2: kind of like on the heels of that um you know we jumped right into covid yep. um and you know seeing sort of like the structural inequities affecting both indigenous communities um and black communities and then you know now we have you know what's been happening um and i mean police brutality and yep. these kind of violences they're nothing new right but it's
0: mm-hmm.
2: just the past few months i guess and it
0: just yeah.
2: it feels like it's definitely nonstop, stop right. um and so it was. it's i wrote this article before that all started to come out but of course it was sort of you know published mm. um, while some of those issues were coming out and so it's been hard yeah. uh, for me to focus on this right now <laughs> when there's other yeah. pressing issues that we need to focus on.
0: well uh yes given that um i mean the other thing that that you know, it always comes back to, as well, with this, uh, and you, you've, you've co-edited something Forever Loved, uh, exposing the hidden crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, um, and the response to racialized and sexualized violence. Uh, now, um, well, when, when, you, uh, when you, you see the situation, um, as we've seen, roll out in the last little while, um because the other thing we, we've heard about, especially with COVID19, is that there there's more of a of a an emphasis now uh, because of this situation of the the potential for increased violence towards indigenous women and women in general um, and um, and uh, you know what what do, what have you been hearing about that?
2: Um, so, I've definitely been hearing that, and and um, we've recently just had another tragedy, right, in New Brunswick. Yeah. Um, you know, where an Indigenous woman uh, was killed during a mental health check, right? Yeah. And so the question is, it, should it be police officers that are going to provide these mental health checks, right? If sure. You're one of those.
0: You, you right. know, if if I can just jump in for a moment uh, with that uh, with that story, um, and that was, of course, the first thing that came to mind when I read it was why is there a police officer showing up on a wellness check, uh, and then mm-hmm. this horrible tragedy uh, takes place, and it's not the first time. Uh, you know, there was the other situation I guess about a week week and a half prior in Toronto. With uh, you know a black woman who fell from her balcony, with police officers engaged on, uh, uh, not necessarily a wellness check, but certainly called by the family, Um, you know, not in terms of a violent situation, uh, in in terms of that regard, but uh, called in to help diffuse, I guess, the situation, and and a tragedy takes place. So so again, it raises the that that uh, question about you know should the police be doing it? Now I I just saw something online. Uh, Cindy Blackstock, I'm sure you're very familiar with her, mm-hmm. uh, she yeah. she tweeted something out about, you know, in BC, um, uh, she was a social worker and they had paired police with uh, workers to go with with them on these kind of calls, which I thought, wow, well, you know, why aren't we seeing that all the time? How come that hasn't happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just makes sense. Yeah,
2: and with the strong push to kind of defund or sort of look at destructuring policing services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping that's the model that we'll be moving towards. And I did just read, just very quickly read something that, um, um, I think it was Minnesota, Mm -hmm. but that's something that um, the council, city council, like had decided to, had voted in favor last night. And I'm not sure if what I was reading was um, correct, but... Mm. um, just quickly saw that pop up on Twitter as well. So, right. hopefully, that's the model that we're moving towards. I mean, it certainly makes sense. I don't feel that, you know, when it comes to these sort of mental health checks or wellness checks, that police officers are the appropriate person that need to be, um, you know, coming out to do that. So, we need to think about different ways mm. when it comes to community safety and protecting the well-being of individuals that need those kind of services. Yeah.
0: Now, you, you mentioned defunding uh, of police, and, and and I'm wondering, you know, that's I guess that's more of what people are actually saying. It's, it's ta- not def- funding the police in terms of their services, but taking uh, taking some of the funds to put into the hands of people that can help in those situations, such as social workers, or such as those, those trauma people that they can help uh, bring into the fold to help alleviate with these uh, kind of situations that we've unfortunately seen happen so far.
2: Yeah, and I think we're seeing a range of um, calls for defu- like f- from defunding police, as you described, to completely like um, you know police abolition.
0: Yeah, but, and, and rebuilding from the ground up, which you know, right, just
2: kind of dismantling yeah. you know the system altogether, and it, like you said, rebuilding.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that way with that. Now, in regard to um, indigenous communities. Uh, and and the covid-19 situation what are you seeing in terms of uh, communities and how how people are still communicating virtually um you know during this time
2: um yeah so that was one of the the focuses of um some of the writing that i've been doing is really trying to see um the ways in which indigenous communities are coming together virtually like at, in sort of like with the backtrack of Backdrop of a, the lack of response for the federal government to do mm. to do anything, right? Um, do anything effective. Um, and so, what we're what has been really powerful and really inspiring has been sort of the virtual um, jingle dress dance, right? And mm. That comes with the connection um, that the jingle dress dance um, is said to have come about, like during um, the influenza right um pandemic in you know a century ago so mm-hmm. to see of course jingle dress isn't just making a comeback like that's something that's right. strong in our communities right sure um but to see that that coming about virtually during this time is really powerful mm. um but then we're also seeing like Indigenous TikTok, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, we're seeing access to things like Indigenous um, storytelling, um, you know, authors coming together, right, during dialogues online. So people have access to Indigenous community, which is really important during this time. Right. Um, Also seeing like the, um, with past the, the past the knife challenge, we're seeing Indigenous chefs from across Turtle Island Mm. and kind of like just post themselves cooking um, indigenous cuisine in their kitchens, right? And so Mm -hmm. those kind of things like keep, again, as I said, like the connection, which is really important to our overall well-being, right? Because Mm -hmm. being without that community connection can be uh, very difficult for many people. Um, But it's also like coming together um, through culture, uh, virtually through culture, right? And it just shows how our culture is adapting to this pandemic in creative ways.
0: Right. Uh, Just going to jump in and say that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure uh, to have with us on the show Dr. Jennifer Brandt. Uh, she's an Associate Professor in Curriculum Teaching and Learning at University of Toronto. And uh, she is also has uh, uh, Indigenous heritage from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, as well as Tayandana. And uh, we're talking about a number of things, uh, specifically around COVID-19, around the recent events that have uh, have brought focus onto uh, Black lives as well as Indigenous lives. Uh, people talking about those kind of things, and and uh, I guess you know Jennifer, I, I'm glad you mentioned the the jingle dress and the jingle dress going viral, and and how you you know that ties in with the the uh, pandemic a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, for a lot of people, they don't know the story about the jingle dress or or the importance of why that jingle dress. Um, uh it, what it signifies um are you able to give a, a brief synopsis of of that story
2: uh sure so i can share like what i have come to know and i'm mm-hmm. um, um a jingle dress dancer myself i haven't danced in a couple of oh years. yeah oh nice um, yeah i think part of that was like moving to winnipeg and moving back and <laughs> either get a new dress made or fit into again. <laughs> but uh so the origin story of the Jingle Dress dance is that it was first danced by Maggie White um, Mm -hmm. of Whitefish Bay First Nation, right? So um, that's here in North or in Ontario Um, and that it came. So Maggie was very sick as a child um, and her father laid down tobacco, right? And asked for um, healing for his, for Maggie. And so the dance came to Maggie's father in a vision, in a dream. Um, And so he made the dress that he drummed and, and, um, Maggie danced. And so this is said to have, um, like this was around the Spanish flu pandemic during that same time. So I've understood or read like different versions of the story, um, that have connected it, um, to that. And of course, Brenda Child, who is a historian, has done a lot of research connecting it to, uh the spanish flu Mm. so the jingle dress dance of course is um you know it's known for that beautiful sound that intricate footwork um and it's a popular healing dance today so whether Mm -hmm. that's a competition or a traditional powwow Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of for more personal healing ceremonies jingle dress dancers are often uh called upon and so seeing this virtual jingle dress uh dance I think is it's bringing healing virtually to our nations right and so mm-hmm. one in particular the nation that's um in the states the Navajo Nation that's been hit
0: right. like right
2: the hardest and so it's just like the numbers today like um there are over 6,000 positive cases and so from what I understand like that's the numbers in the Navajo Nation have surpassed um any other Mm -hmm. indigenous or non-indigenous community right like in the united states and canada um and so it's just i mean that the same we see the same thing here in our communities right in some of our northern communities with h1n1 being hit Mm -hmm. the um and so it really draws the need for an effective response from the federal government right to do something and I, i don't think it's um it's not disconnected from other structural barriers that our communities have faced for a very long time and like one of the main ones being access to safe drinking water um and so we have many communities with oil water advisories but we also have um communities with do not use advisories so you can't wash your hands (laughs) right with that water right
0: yeah Uh, uh, with uh,
2: covid we're told to wash our hands (laughs) yeah well what does that mean when you don't have access to clean water that Mm-hmm. you can just wash your hands yep
0: very true um, the the jingle rest I, I'd like to to come back to that um, in, in a moment uh, but you're right about the water and uh, absolutely and some of those boiling water situations have gone on for a couple of couple of decades in some communities uh, imagine just living with that Uh you know, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 this has gone on uh, just like you said, and now we're into another situation that is just compounding uh, these these uh, situations for for many communities, which is uh, which should have been dealt with a long time ago. Yeah, bottom line is that's that's what should have happened. Now, so what is your your sense that you think the prime minister and the government should be doing?
2: um well there's a lot of things that they could be doing um so i know like that prime minister justin trudeau had announced a covid relief fund it was mm. on may 21st mm. um but if this was from what i understand this was more geared towards um urban community and mm. so pam palmer to kind of referred to this like as a drop in the bucket right it's arguably mm-hmm. ineffective mm-hmm. and it fails to address what indigenous communities have been asking for yep. um another with that sort of relief fund from what i understand was that it was um that it was going to take weeks to roll out um and of course i haven't been following right i haven't seen many updates on that um in the last couple of weeks so i'm not sure where we're at with that but it certainly doesn't address (laughs) some of these things like access to clean drinking water um you know um overcrowding Mm
0: -hmm.
2: lack of infrastructure uh, just sending like the appropriate healthcare services um you know i know with h1n1 one of the things was you know the call to send um medical supplies including things like hand sanitizer right and the community right. received body bags so what kind of message yeah. is that sending yeah. to indigenous communities Sorry, right. i know i'm going a bit off track you were asking about the relief fund but again i think all of these um elements are important and they're they're not disconnected
0: right um the body bags i don't think that's the first time that's happened i think that's happened once before as well
2: yeah so it i know it happened um in 2009 with mm. h1n1 mm-hmm. And it just recently happened uh, in the United States when the Seattle yeah. Indian Health Department asked for supplies for the Navajo Nation. They also right. received body bags. Um, so again, 2009, you, and then we see it happen again in, yeah. in 2020.
0: So. And you know, the thing is that uh, for, for many people that, that don't uh, know or don't consider this because it's not on their radar. Uh, and that is that for indigenous communities uh, for elders, if they were to get sick or or uh, pass away from COVID nineteen, if they are in many cases the the, the knowledge keepers, the language keepers, uh, that that's a heavy blow to a community.
2: Yes, and so I I know like with Six Nations, um, I think Six Nations, from what I understand, and it might be because I you know connected to Six Nations, but one of the first communities to um, set up the barricades to mm-hmm. keep that don't live in the community out and um from what I understand um the idea behind that was this project to protect our elders yep. right for that very reason yep. right so that, you know our elders are you know our language carriers um our cultural carriers right yeah. and so a very you know you need to protect these people in our communities but of course also being vulnerable like more vulnerable um even more so to right. COVID-19. It, it,
0: do you mind me asking, as uh, because you mentioned you're a jingle dress uh, dancer yourself? Um, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of work that goes into preparing that jingle dress. Um, and um, many people probably don't, you know, don't understand that that's not something you just go and pick up off the shelf.
2: Yes. Um, and so, it, you know, there's the teachings that come along with it, but mm-hmm. also, For me, um, and from what I understand many people, um, it's also like, it's a very strong personal commitment, um, and so it took me a long time before I felt that I was ready to take on that commitment, um, and so I, you know, I danced traditional, um, I tried fancy, (laughs) fancy shawl dancing for a Mm. while, um, but before, I always, like from a child, always wanted, was drawn to the jingle dress dance and wanted to do that. And it, so it mm. wasn't until I felt that I was um, prepared to take on that responsibility in that role. Mm.
0: Um,
2: and so, again, you are called on um, to to do like personal um, healing uh, ceremonies as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So there is a huge responsibility that comes with that.
0: Um, you know, we're into uh, we're into June, and that is, of course, uh, Indigenous History Month. Um, what are your What are your thoughts? What are your uh, your feelings uh, as we enter this uh, in, this month uh, of, of June and Indigenous History Month uh, um, and the things that you're involved with?
2: Um, so we are having a celebration um, here in Niagara Falls. And I think a strong component of that is also going to be supporting um, the Black Lives Matter Mm. movement. Mm -hmm. I've read um, the author um, of The Skin We're In is going to be there, Desmond Cole.
0: Mm. Um,
2: And so I think it's really important that we reflect deeply um, on Indigenous History Month this year, right? And, And focus on Indigenous Black solidarity Hayden King recently tweeted, No Indigenous History Month without concrete thinking and action on Indigenous Black history and solidarity. And Mm. so that's Mm. kind of what I'm focused on.
0: Mm. So you're in the Niagara area right now. I didn't realize that. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, And
2: I'm home with my children, of course.
0: Yes, of course.
2: And so I've had my son (laughs) open the door about two times. trying to stay
0: focused (laughs) Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about the jingle dress story that you shared I learned something from that I didn't realize that it was the father that had the dream that's not how I heard the story I always heard it was the girl that had the dream so that's really interesting
2: yes and like I've heard both versions of that as well so Mm. I I did um, but I from what I understand it's the father that had the dream Mm. um, and the girl that um, was ill but I did hear one Mm. and I think you know, as sometimes as these stories get shared in different spaces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, details can, can right. change a little bit. But that's the consistent story that I heard. Um, and,
0: and and he made the dress. Wow, that's yes. that's yes. wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, the first time I've heard that. That's that's cool. Glad to, I'm glad you shared that. Is there anything else you can think of uh, that we haven't spoken about that that you feel is important to uh, to address at this time?
2: I think one of the things that, for me, has really been felt struggling, and, and, and part of it is like the virtual connection and the virtual jingle dress was like, that the positives, the the cultural strength that comes out of these hard times, right? And so I'm thinking about, you know, feelings that were, that came out during the Idle No More movement, mm. right? Um, and that sense of community, and of course that wasn't like in a, <laughs> that wasn't virtual, right? Mm. Like we were together. Um, during Idle No More and during the flash mob round dances but just that strong um, sense of uh, community um, coming together right is is something that um, those kind of feelings I think are coming back uh, with the virtual responses that we're seeing to COVID-19 and by extension like with the responses that we're seeing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter.
0: Well, speaking of coming together, can you share with us, because you, you teach some courses as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the courses that you're going to be teaching, uh, that you are teaching and, and how you, you envision that moving forward?
2: So I'm going to be teaching online for the, um, I I actually ended my, the last term, um, just with the final two weeks Mm. moving online, which is very new to me. Um, so moving forward in the fall um like many people are kind of learning these um learning what that shift is like from Mm. from teaching face to face to teaching online sure Um, and so one of the courses that i teach i teach um one of the indigenous requirement courses so one of the mandatory indigenous courses in teacher education Mm -hmm. Uh, it's actually the only indigenous course that the teacher candidates have to take which is another (laughs) <laughs> um conversation altogether, and that's part of what my research is on is on focusing um on the resistances in these uh indigenous requirement courses but also mm. the need to have more than just one course mm. um so that moving that to online I'm not you know I've been I'll spend the summer kind of crafting what that's going to look like and I've already been working on that component but moving from like my my research Um, and my teaching which are very linked has focused strongly on establishing like a safe classroom community for talking about Mm. um emotionally charged dialogue and Mm -hmm. so it's going to be i'm going to see what that looks like online
0: Mm.
2: um so that's one course i teach uh the other courses i teach one focuses on uh structural and colonial violence in education and um a new one that i'll be teaching this year um will be an indigenous literature's course. And so again, um, there's a lot of reading that comes with that, of course. And so I think that component will be, um, and the reflection piece will easily move online. But again, I'll be missing on that uh, face-to-face community connection.
0: Well, uh, everyone's gonna have to be dealing with that for a little while longer, at least, until uh, there's a solution found.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh now the courses i have listed just to uh, go by names uh structural and colonial violence education responses and uh, complicities uh as well as indigenous perspectives of racism and settler colonialism and introduction and then uh, indigenous material uh pedagogies uh teaching for reconciliation are they the are they the three or is that the liter- is literature the the, the Is that an additional course to these?
2: Yep. So the literature one is going to be a new one. So that'll be a fourth.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and speaking with you, and and we're glad you took the time to to call in.
2: Yes. Excellent. Thank you.
0: Our pleasure. That is Dr. Jennifer Brandt. Uh, She is an an assistant professor in curriculum teaching and learning at the University of Toronto. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. And that is our show for today. We appreciate you, our listeners, always tuning in and listening to Moment of Truth right here on Element FM. Until then, we'll see you next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.